Welcome to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast dedicated to being publicly curious about creativity, commerce, and culture. Hosted by myself, Nikita Walia, a brand builder and strategist with over a decade of experience. Together, we'll explore the many dimensions of modern brand building and how cultural codes evolve to build new models for commerce. Welcome back to Thinking Out Loud. Today, we're joined by my long-term friend and writer, Arabelle Sicardi. Arabelle is a writer and a brand consultant who focuses on the intersection of beauty, technology, and power. They pen a beauty industry newsletter, and they've written for places like Elle, Harper's Bazaar, Team Vogue, The Cut, and Vogue Business. They're also the author of two books, Queer Heroes, a children's book on queer folks throughout history, and The House of Beauty, a nonfiction book on the beauty industry forthcoming from Norton. It's not yet available for pre-order. They joined me today to talk about beauty brands, their career growing up on the internet, and the power of community building for brands. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Arabelle. It's so nice to have you today. I feel like it's been 300 years since I last saw you in real life. I mean, it has been. It's been more than two years of the pandemic, right? So I think so. I think it's been a lifetime. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you don't even live in New York anymore, which is really sad <laughs> to me it's personally. It's really weird. It's, <laughs> it's weird. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time having my LA moment. I don't know how long the moment will be, but I love having a backyard and um, actual no weather. So also the food here, I'm sorry, is just superior. I have not had a mid-meal. Um, <laughs> so still love New York. We'll be back for Fashion Week, but you know. I'm happy here for now. You're having your like a person from New York moves to LA retirement. <laughs> like, honestly, yes. I just need to sell like several more books and then I will fully just be like an old retired lesbian minding my business <laughs> with my dog. <laughs> LA Don Draper era. Yeah. Yeah. Insert my Coca-Cola commercial here. <laughs> well, I feel like I have known you for so long. I've seen so many iterations of your career and, you know, your transition from being like a full-time writer at a publication to now working on a book. Um, And I feel like you've lived on the internet in so many different forms. Um, I would just, you know, love for you to share sort of the arc of your career from, you know, the early blogging days to what you're doing now. Sure, here are the spark notes for my internet existence. So I was a fashion blogger before Instagram was even a thing. Yes, I at now um, I contribute to an IRA, like I'm old now. <laughs> but I had a fashion blog and it lived many iterations itself. Like it started off on Blogspot um, and then I moved to Tumblr and became a little Tumblr girly. Um, yeah. And, you know, was really close with a bunch of the people that are now like leading the fashion industry right now. So it's like Dara and Hari and like all of the girlies that are, you know, popping off right now. I think Dara is like the fashion editor at Interview and Hari just got casted to be Candy Darling. And yeah, so those were the people that I grew up on the Internet with. And that was in like high school and college. That was perpetual interneting. (laughs) And I guess I had like half a million followers on, on those platforms. And it really was like my life. I was a, I was writing for fashion magazines since I was in high school. So I didn't really have a normal childhood. It was very much like what you would imagine a gossip girl student to <laughs> to have. So I would skip school or I would skip class and I would go to a fashion show. I was never at high school parties. Mm-hmm. I've, I've still, like, obviously, like, I've still, and I will never be going to one <laughs> in my life. Um, and I had a very unusual adolescence. And it just parlayed itself into full-time fashion and beauty writing for magazines right out of school. And I was a beauty editor briefly at BuzzFeed right out of college. Um, 
that lasted approximately five seconds, not even a full year, but it was like the best decision I could have made to leave. I left mm-hmm. on my own terms and um, I had every opportunity in front of me to, you know, go to any other publication when I quit to continue to be a beauty editor. But the reality is every single media company has the same exact issues. Mm-hmm. They're just put in different uniforms or like different fonts. So I wasn't really interested in burning out over and over again under other people's terms. So I decided right when I quit that I wanted to write a beauty book on my own terms and came up with like pages and pages of ideas for stories I wanted to write over the next couple of years. And I've pretty much stuck to that list. Like it wasn't a very um, specific list, but it was very elaborate. And honestly, the beauty book that I sold um, a couple years ago now that's in revisions when I go back to that like original list I wrote in some beach house in Barbados like I did keep the core of the ideas I wanted to write and they've just transformed after years of researching and exploring them and having the opportunity to just let an idea take root which is such a privilege to have um, I really enjoy being able to create on my own timeline And I'm very lucky to be able to do so because I do not write quickly. I write really slowly. I let things percolate. I ask everybody questions and I come back and I change my mind. And that's something that not a lot of people get to do. So even though I don't write that often, um, and I certainly don't write as much publicly anymore, uh, I have fewer bylines than I used to, but that's a choice that I, I make. Because if it's not an immediate yes, it's a no. So I only take on projects and collaborations and ideas if I can't stop thinking about them and if I know it's going to nurture my long-term growth. Um, And I would rather, you know, say no to a low-paying project um, than have to fight to advocate for myself. Because none of these companies, you know, they they don't personally care about us. So I have to care for myself more than anybody else so I'm not having a fun time writing something then I'm just not going to do it yeah and it's yeah that's my career (laughs) yeah and it's really sad like there's just this like constant uncomfortable tension between like the clicks that people need to get and the amount of pressure that's put on writers and especially like people in minority groups to just like shop these like trauma stories for clicks and get pigeonholed into that. Like if anyone can step out of that lane, like more power to them. But like so many people get stuck into that lane. Oh yeah. I mean, I've definitely had experiences where I've literally crawled under my desk and cried over a bad edit or just a bad writing process. And I've totally had stress dreams about not hitting traffic numbers or, you know, being you know, turned into a leper or something because I didn't hit the same traffic numbers as somebody else because we're doing completely different things for different kinds of audiences towards mm-hmm. different ends. That's like all of the internet um, is very loud, but a lot of it is really similar and junky. And I try to make content that is what, you know, you would call evergreen. So the stories that people most care about for me are things that they can't stop thinking about for years and I have people tattooing my words on their bodies and like going into beauty as a career because of what what I've written so I'm not interested in doing really quick viral content that's outrage clicks I try to do things that people can carry with them and that requires a completely different tool set than you're typically taught um, at a media company because you're you're taught to do things fast and quick and I'm like I do the things in the exact opposite way. And I'm not changing that. Yeah. And that's why I'm expensive. <laughs> I won't apologize for that. So. 100%. And I think like, you know, the media industry now, I think people, a lot of people grew up on a diet of like watching the sex in the cities of the world. And she's like surviving on some one column somehow and think that like things are going to be <laughs> like that. 
And then you get it, end up in one of these publications and it's like your life is like Harry Styles wore nail polish and now you have to report on it. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) And I'm not interested. Yeah, no. (laughs) I will always pass along those stories. Whenever I get asked to do like some sort of piece like that, I'm like, you've never written, you've never seen anything I've ever written and do just know me as a name. And like, I'm so flattered that you would want me on your roster as a freelancer, but I'm not the right person. And then when that happens, I just give them a list of people that would jump at the opportunity because I would rather build my network and have people get into the room that want to be there than pretend that I care enough to stay. Yeah. Do you, you know, obviously this is not a luxury a lot of writers have. Do you think you have it because you, you know, maybe accidentally at first like spent so much time building your own platform as a thinker and reader and writer? Oh yeah, but it wasn't accidental. Like I had a plan of, like, you know me, I'm a Capricorn. I have so much Capricorn placements. I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was 14. And I executed that strategy with few deviations. Um, And every single year I have a very intense like bucket list for the year that's broken down by every category of my life. And I usually accomplish every single thing on that, barring, you know, a global worldwide pandemic that shuts down traveling and the healthcare system. (laughs) So um, I am more self-directed than a lot of other creatives that I know when it comes to researching and, you know, Mm -hmm. creating larger projects for myself. Um, it's just who I am as a person and it was part of what I planned from the very beginning because I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was starting off my fashion blog. I knew that I wanted to shape stories. I didn't want to necessarily be them Mm -hmm. and that required specific school sets. It required a specific network and the capacity to execute a story idea. So I did go to school for journalism I did learn traditionally how to to write a story, how to copy edit, how to fact check, how to build out a script and these things that you're not necessarily taught if you're just entering into the media space without a journalism background. You learn on your feet a lot of the time and a lot of these media companies, they are very young staff, which is, you know, good for being able to touch the pulse of culture and who you want clicking but that's also a degradation of like a skill set that a lot of people aren't taught immediately like older reporters um they they shaped their careers in a completely different way at like local newspapers and they just know completely different things that are really valuable Mm -hmm. and so I tried to learn as much as I could from mentors and from traditional media and apply it in a different way um, the way that I wanted to in new platforms so I would run my let's say like my makeup tumbler I had a makeup tumbler called powder doom that had a lot of followers and this was you know this was in like the 2016-2014 era of makeup Right. So it's like the heyday of YouTube influencers. Mm-hmm. Everyone reads Temptalia and like looks at swatches. And um, there's it's just this was before TikTok was a thing. And I treated it more like it was its own little informal media company. And I parlayed that and my Internet following into internships as soon as I could legally intern as a college student. So I was interning at Teen Vogue when I was a freshman and this was before the Condé Nast lawsuit. So I was literally making zero dollars. I think I had a stipend of $2 and 50 cents a day, if that. And that was probably Um, for the subway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was for the subway. And like, I think you, you had to fill out a spreadsheet for like um, all of the times you come in so they could pay you back at the end of the month so you would be waiting for like a paycheck of like 60 dollars or something and you're supposed to say thank you meanwhile like all of these editors are getting sent you know free designer bags or getting offered these like trips to faraway places all expenses paid for like the pre-r trips and there's just there's so much wealth just flying around that you're 
you're navigating and you're organizing essentially as an intern, but you have access to none of that in a way that actually improves your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was freshman year. And it was also, I think I, I interned as a senior in a different, I was Elaine Welchroth and Philip Picardi's last beauty intern because I was an intern during the Condé lawsuit as well. And that was extremely awkward um, for Condé offices. There was like a big elephant in the room in the entire office. But I really cherished that experience in in office because it let me know what I didn't want to do and what I really had a passion about. And it was clear that the blueprint to becoming an editor was changing as I was on the ladder. And I had to figure out how to navigate it on my own terms because it was certain that I was not like the niece or nephew of an editor and was not going to get one of the opening like positions lined up for me. Um, And they, a lot of the times like Condé just didn't know what to do with me. Like they wanted me to sign forms that they didn't have other interns necessarily sign because they didn't really get social media yet. This was the era in which like, Mm -hmm. Eva Chen left Condé because like they didn't really get what she was doing and now she's head of fashion at Instagram and all of these media companies have to knock on her door but you know media companies didn't really get social media yet and like still considered it quite significant threat so yeah I I knew that I wanted to navigate the industry on my own terms so I, I did that being said like I know that my my specific experience of media is different. Yeah. And it's not something that I'll, I guess a lot of people could necessarily replicate. And I say that every time someone asks me for advice, I'm like, I had a very specific journey that relied so heavily on timing and just being lucky and the privilege that I could live at my parents' house instead of paying rent and Brooklyn when I was an intern in college and being able to you know shape my life around stuff that I could not fiscally afford so I would like do work study at school and then it it was at like a computer lab so I would file stories or I would pitch and I would build my career while I was also working at the computer lab and that's how I built up so much of my early clips yeah and my career and how I was able to have, you know, like four or five experience, four or five years of experience in editorial before I I left college is because like, I just used the resources available to me. And for me, that meant work study, minimum wage, working like midnight hour shifts right next to my dorm and just making it work because it had to, it's not glamorous it's just what happened and I can say no to things now because I got a good book deal that is um, a lot rarer for a debut author than you know one would expect like and that changed my life fiscally and it allowed me to reshape my finances and the way I take on projects but it's also not going to last forever you know so I have to work differently Mm -hmm. and that's totally fine it's like a blessing but it does let me say no to low-paying projects yeah I think you know to your point everyone sees a lot of people see like a successful person and think that there is a playbook and I think that's because of like you know all of these courses that have sprung up and the master classes of the world but like that path you took or even I took you know similar to you I worked at agencies all through college. So coming out, I had almost five years of experience. It's not, you know, something that's easy. It's not something that everyone can do or, you know, necessarily should do. Like sometimes I wish I had, you know, enjoyed college a bit more, but, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that is to say, I think, you know, everyone just has to really figure out that one thing that they want to keep chasing after and like for the right reasons that it's intellectually engaging to them or interesting and not just, you know, I want to be an author of this stature, like this person, you know? Totally, totally. Those accolades and those, 
those lists, they'll eat you alive. Like they will eat you alive. They will make you an uglier and bitter person if you don't get them. And it will shape you in ways that are devastating. And I know people that, you know, are really obsessed with those things. And I can't, I can't be around that energy. Like I just, most of my friends now aren't actually other writers. And that's been really great for my mental health because I don't, have to talk about work all the time. I don't have to talk about the media industry dying. I'm a no one knowing what to do. The things that um, were kind of on loop before when I was like heavily in New York literati, they're not things that bother me anymore because like I'm just trying to do the things that make me happy and fulfill me and challenge me and find people that are doing that too and they don't have to be other writers. I find so much joy in talking to perfumers or cosmetic chemists and like people that are part of the beauty industry but are not part of the media industry and that adds value to my life and it gives me a way bigger sense of perspective because there's so much that I don't know and I don't want to be driven by like oh I wasn't on like this media list or I'm not this person's favorite like freelancer or like I don't have a byline here yet like that none of that matters to me all I want to be able to do is be able to do projects on my own terms and I'm very lucky that I got to say yes to a publishing team at Norton that showed up and rolled so hard for me when I was um, selling my book like Every single person on the Norton team showed up to my meeting. It's amazing. Like the entire floor and people, people that don't have anything to do with my genre or whatever, they were just excited to meet me and excited and invested in me. And having that experience was really affirming for me because it let me know that all of the work I put in to get the book into publishers' hands for the auction was like worth it because <laughs> I had spent you know I started writing drafts of yeah. my book proposal in what 20 2016 as soon as I left or like 2015 like right around the time I left BuzzFeed but it took years for it to get to a point where it was ready to be sold and that was an exhausting and ugly process and that was all self-funded like I was stringing along freelance assignments Um, to make rent but also trying to make sure that my assignments got me to a place that I could use for research for my book so when I did a piece for Racked on like perfume and god and I was in Italy like that was because I happened I was going to be going to Italy anyway because of friends sugar daddy money and so I was like let me just make sure that I have ways to self-fund this trip if anything goes wrong or Like, I just want to be able to take care of myself in any circumstance. So I pitched a story, made sure that it would cover my own expenses, regardless of who was paying for the flight. And it was good that that happened because, you know, things changed and I needed to have my own resources. So it's like, when I say I will do anything to make sure a story happens, I truly mean that. Like, (laughs) I I will figure out a way to get where I need to be, to get (laughs) what I want out of a situation. And um, yeah, so I just, I just try to make sure that I'm investing in myself at all times. And, you know, that's what matters to me. The, the accolades, like they would be great, but I can't pay attention to them because I can't control them, but I can show, I can control how I show up into a room and how I show up to revisions and how I show up to my ideas. And if I can only control that, that's still more than enough for me to handle. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess transitioning a little bit in the last few years, you know, you've not only been writing, but you've also been consulting for beauty brands. And I think there's just been this bigger trend of people from like editorial mastheads going to big brands or even smaller brands and like opening consultancies. What has that been like Mm -hmm. for you, like, you know, to consult on beauty and marketing? Like how involved do you get? Is it at the formulation level? 
Um, and why do you think you know that editorial experience is so valuable for these brands to have at some point as a consultant on their roster? Well, they were always synchronous for me, really. It was about figuring out how to most accurately separate church and state for me because I was being asked to consult for brands when I was still in high school before I was even formally a writer. I think one of my first clients was Nike. Um, so that was, it was just always part of how my pie chart of how I was going to pay the rent was going to achieve itself because writing itself for editorial places, like for fashion magazines, they pay terribly. They typically pay awfully. And the, the cost is on like the, the amount per word has only gone down. So consulting, even if it's like a, only a couple hours for a couple of one-off clients a month, that pays like 10 times more than actually reporting out something. So it was always part of the playbook for me. It was just, I focused primarily on brands that I knew I was never going to report on mm-hmm. or knew that I would be okay with turning down reporting on so there wasn't some sort of weird disclosure I would have to make because my integrity as as a writer and just as a person matters like the most to me so I don't want people to call into question my involvement with a brand I will let you know up front if I've ever worked with worked a brand with them, if they've yeah. ever asked me to work with them and that's really important because my value as a like a, a writer and as a person people look to is the fact that I am unswayed by advertorial concerns. Like that is part of what people know me for. So it's never worth it for me to be like, uh, I'm not going to tell people or, you know, like that's, yeah, it's, it's a no go. So for me, um, a lot of my clients for consulting, they weren't in the beauty industry for years. They were tech companies. They were, you know, alcohol companies or wellness companies that weren't really in the beauty space. They were companies that I understood the industry of or the culture of, um, but they weren't asking me to like help them with a formulation. That being said, obviously I've had plenty of beauty companies um, and yeah, my involvement ranges. Like I've been involved in the product development stage. I've been involved in consumer research and trend forecasting I have had a lot of fun in like the weird semiotic space where it's just like ha- helping them figure out and ideate like what their vibes are going to be, which is like, such, it feels like such fake work, but it's something that, that you and I, I would say like, it's just like instinctual to us. Absolutely. So it's a, just a pleasure. It's just a pleasure to do. It's like, I can't believe that I can get paid to just tell you that your next word is going to be power. That's like the easiest thing for me mm-hmm. to tell you. Um, I mean, yeah, personally, yes, power is easy for me to describe. But um, yeah, so it's just always been part of how I how I do things. Because when I'm researching for a beauty story, I'm always thinking about the industry at large. I'm always thinking at a way bigger scale than just a particular product. And that means that it makes me really good at consulting if someone wants to adjust you know, their, their brand for the next quarter or like what they need to focus on for their research, for their product development. So a lot of times when I'm pitching a beauty piece, it's operating more as a white paper. It's like a publicly available, a publicly available white paper. So mm-hmm. the public gets the benefit, but it also allows me to operate as sort of um, free advertising for myself. If a company wants to email me and be like, hey, I saw your piece in insert ma- like magazine or publication here. Would you be open to consulting on this? And I'm like, yes, as a matter of fact, I am open to it. Here's my rates. Yeah. And that's how it, it snowballs, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially the last like five to seven years, there's been such a like, shake up in the beauty industry kind of like what happened in fashion mm-hmm. with bloggers at first it happened with like the MUAs and YouTubers um and mm-hmm. you know what do you think about this like constant like pendulum swing between like skincare and makeup and skincare meets makeup like what are you excited to see and what you're what are you rolling your eyes at that's a great question um right now I'm kind of in on the 
slow upswing out of a burnout related to beauty influence yeah. um, toxicity, you know, because I think for me, I don't conceptualize there's a difference between the skincare and, and makeup communities when it comes to beauty on the internet. For me, it's about what you're trying to get out of an interaction with an influencer online. So, you know, like 2014-ish era YouTube gurus, they taught specific things around products in a specific format. And then it became more of like the diet productification of the internet and all of how we consume beauty. Mm-hmm. I think it changed a little bit from the tutorial standpoint to like this culture of gossip and not just consumption, but very conscious consumption that's like if you don't have this product like you're you're not with it like you don't like you're done you're done so and it became more catty and weird and um I mean take the the rise and the the reframing of Bretman Rock for example like he was part of the beauty YouTube community and he managed to like consciously leave that and reshape himself as an influencer kind of removed from that and he's made a like a new life for himself mm-hmm. out of that and it's so smart that he did because the YouTube community is kind of passe at this point in comparison to like TikTok and stuff like that right, right? so for me I'm I'm excited about the beauty community for being really smart and really curious right now in a way that I haven't really seen it before. People care a lot about regulations. They care about the cultural history and significance of of beauty in a way that wasn't as present when I first began writing about beauty. And it's part of why I wanted to. Like, I've had these questions too, and they, they made up my career. But so many people have them now, and that's good. I just also think that there's some sort of like there's like a policing nature of how we consume beauty now in a way that honestly disgusts me like it truly like disgusts me because I think people go in with bad intentions now sometimes and we learned kind of the wrong things from tumblr when it comes to calling out things yeah and the idea of uh, of an ethical interaction is really fraught now in a way that is frankly exhausting. And so I've, I've had to step back from like consuming beauty media online because I'm like, you, you guys are all making me crazy. Like actually, if I tried to explain the beauty drama of the past years to, to someone that was never online, I would look like a total psychopath. And so it's with that in mind that I try to be online less or to try to take things less seriously. I try to be kinder. And I just, I'm trying to do things a little differently than I did before because I'm trying to grow and learn and understand that we all go into a situation with our own intentions. Mm-hmm. And they may not be the same ones when you enter a room. So, I don't know. That's not really answering your question. But for me, I'm like... There's... Capitalism, like, loves beauty because, you know, it's it's a great black hole of, of desire and anxiety that it can just put a price tag on. That's always been true. I think now it's just even more complicated because you do have really great cultural commentary about cultural appropriation and Mm -hmm. like is there a right kind of girl boss and what makes an ethical beauty brand and how can you succeed on your own terms without you know sucking up to a specific brand or packaging yourself a certain way and if you say yes to something but someone else doesn't get the same opportunity does that mean that you're problematic for taking on that opportunity like all of these questions they pop up for everybody that are in this space. Um, And it's exhausting. So I'm just trying to have fun 
honestly, at this point, because I have already, ha- I have contractual obligations to do work on my terms that I love. So I just try to stick to that and have fun and play when I'm not doing that. And I'm having a lot more fun now on the internet than I did, you know, a year ago. Yeah. Um, which is nice. It's refreshing. So there's that. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, it feels like two things are happening, like to your point about Fretman Rock and the YouTube community. I think, I think people are slowly realizing that like beauty is like one part of your life and it exerts a lot of power about how you move through the world and how you're perceived or whatever. But if ultimately it's not fun and you're just sticking to like these weird authoritarian rules of like you wear the products this way and you do that and like just looking to other people to define what it means to you. Like, it's just going to mean so much less to you than if you figure out like, what are the things that work for me? What are the modes of presentation that work for me? What, where is this coming from? What does it mean? Um, Rather than like, you know, someone told me to do it this way and I have to like do the contour this way or I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, my relationship to beauty has changed so drastically throughout the pandemic. I mean, the first two years I hardly wore any, I, I, can't, I literally can't remember doing my makeup maybe more than twice here. in the full t- f- f- first two years of the pandemic. And now I'm doing my makeup almost every day. Um, I, I do like red light sauna treatments. I like do at-home facials. I'm really, I'm into beauty stuff. I love rediscovering my, my products and stuff that I fully neglected. And it's because I'm, I'm doing it for for me for different reasons now I like I love being able to prepare myself and it's not that I have like you know lower self-esteem than I did the first two years it was just like I didn't want I didn't even bother to perceive myself initially when we were like super shut down right and um I like that you can just return to it I like that it's always there and I like that you can consistently redefine your terms with it and yes sometimes I walk into a CVS or I walk into Sephora or an Ulta and I love just like spending time seeing what products are sold out and what are and what are all the cool girlies like like buying multiples of that's always been something that interests me and I think now especially I just I like being able to see what culture is is doing in a way that doesn't even involve me talking to other people but can like it's the easiest way to make friends is like to go into a girl's bathroom and like compliment someone's makeup, right? Like you can do that even if you are socially awkward, like to the point where you can hardly speak. Like you can always just like make a connection based on beauty. And that's always been really important to me. And now that more people are outside and we've all fully hit like a pandemic wall where we're trying to have a sense of normalcy again, even if that (laughs) feels dangerous or risky, like we want connection and I think the beauty world, both online and in person, it's all about connection as much as it is about consumption. We want to consume the same things or we have strong opinions about why what we're, we're buying or want to buy is better than another product. So it's, it's like our Super Bowl. Like I know that that makes me sound like misogynist or something, but I mean like beauty is... Beauty is my Super Bowl every single day. I think about it all the time. I think about the possibilities of it. I think about like narrative arcs of entrepreneurs and founders. I think about how much money people spend on it per year. Yeah. And like how much people in different circumstances can afford to spend. The lipstick index, like all of these things. They're just always in my head. So, yeah. (laughs) 100%. I mean, I remember like, early in the pandemic, one of my biggest predictions was that like coming out of it, people would be wearing crazy eye makeup. And here we are, like everybody's like getting all these like eye paints and like studs and stuff and euphoria, whatever. But I just knew that was going to happen because people were going to come from like two years of like, you know, similar to you and I not even looking at ourselves in the mirror and being like, huh, who is this person? What do they mean? Like, what do they look like? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's just like what it's like the flapper effect, mm-hmm. right? It's just like you got you get depression and then you get you get great Gatsby shit. <laughs> so 
<laughs> None of it's new. It's just the pendulum swinging back and forth. Yeah. So. Yeah. 100%. So I think the last five years, we've seen a lot of people, you know, not only try to mimic the success of Glossier, but just try and get in on this like beauty gold rush. What is your word of advice to anyone start trying to start a beauty brand right now? Should they even try and do it? I think it really depends on what they're selling. I don't think we need more beauty products in the world. Like genuinely, we have so much waste already. So whatever you're selling, you have to justify the amount of waste it's going to produce. And I don't think most people Mm -hmm. can, to be perfectly frank. If they're going to start a brand, they have to put community first, even maybe before the product itself. And community is very expensive to make. And there is not really a magic wand or formula for that. Glossy is a great example of them putting community first and rolling it out. And, you know, they had a great moment and era of legitimacy and like omnipotence almost. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't do everything right. They're great lessons in their story for any entrepreneur to learn. Um, And one of those is just to constantly pivot and adapt. They, I don't think that they adapted well enough to what people were telling them over and over again. Mm -hmm. And now with the news of them getting into Sephora, like, I feel like most people I know that are in the industry were like, this is years too late, actually. Like, ordinarily brands celebrate this happening but my first instinct when this happened was oh shit (laughs) I mean that's the thing like they'll probably see like a quarter of two of returns on that and then it'll level back out you know ultimately yeah they started with community but maybe they just stopped listening to the way that people started moving with beauty we're speaking to them yeah I don't think the community they didn't offer like to change with the community as the community was asking them to change with them and to see them differently. And I think that was the great flaw of, of, you know, their story. I mean, of course they're still wildly successful and they're a great example of, of doing a lot of things right. But, you know, if you're, if a new beauty, like wannabe beauty founder asks me, what's the magic wand? I'm like, you need to build community first and you need to be able to adapt very quickly if someone is telling you that you fucked up or something Mm -hmm. so um but also it's just like I don't what what problems I feel like a lot of beauty brands are coming up that are trying to solve a problem that they themselves created just to sell Mm -hmm. their product that's not really new but we don't need new categories of, of beauty necessarily. I, I We have a lot of problems within the beauty industry that a, a company can come out of as the solution for. Yeah. So instead of finding white space in a, a category, I think it's about connecting categories um, and finding bridge points in like the net of what the beauty industry does and what it means to the world at large. And that's a lot more of a complicated question to address, but it's also a very expensive and profitable one if they have a good answer. Yeah. And I think, you know, even on the community thing, you know, working full-time marketing side, it's like the fuzziest buzzword right now. And like, the thing is no one wants to be a part of 800 brand communities just to like be marketed exactly. to. So like, let's be real with ourselves. Like, yeah. What are you giving people in return for like bringing them into a room or a discord or a Geneva chat? Like what is, what is the value for them? Yeah. Like. Exactly. Like I hate discord. Like I can't log into a discord number one. So it just wasted space to try and get me into one. Um, most people don't use clubhouse anymore. Um, if you tried to sell me an NFT, I would, I would, just block you, frankly. Um, So a lot of these like experimental ideas that companies are throwing at the wall and hoping they stick, they're just not, they're not speaking to the majority of people. But the thing is like, I don't think that beauty brands are trying to speak to everybody. I think a lot of the times they're trying to just turn a very big profit in an experimental space and then use that to balance their ledgers, right? Because like, 
not everyone, like most people do not have an NFT, but you hear about like in a press release, you read about some brand doing one-off NFTs Mm -hmm. for like to create a more like diverse virtual reality or something. And I'm like, you don't even have like 30 shades of your foundation. Why are you trying to make like virtual space more diverse? Focus on real customers first, like start there. Right. Yeah. So. And I think, and anyway, that's my niche. No, rant. I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of stuff that I work on and have been helping brands on in terms of navigating Web3. And I think they all get so stuck on the tactics and the technology. And I think they don't necessarily understand like the ethos of why people like built this like collaborative community model and like what it could do for them if they did it right and bothered to like educate and on-ramp people correctly. But, you know, so many people just want Mm -hmm. the like ad age headline of like XYZ brand launches like burger NFT. And then there's a rocket that goes to space. And then also Richard Branson was involved. Like that's what they want rather than like bringing an actual community into the brand. And like, I don't know, like, you get the thing and you get to be on an advisory board or something like that's more interesting than like Richard Branson being launched to the moon by a burger brand. Yeah. I mean, it's because like we're, we're at a specific point in the perspective of these brands life cycle where we are more invested in like the community aspect and like who's using the products, who has an emotional connection to them, who will have memories and loyalty and be able to share that naturally word of mouth, organic growth for a brand is a gold mine. And that's what they say they want. But really they want, you know, returns that they can bring to like their venture capital investors and be like, see, you invested in us correctly. We're not screwing this up. But, you know, trying to get a big growth and big return and trying to invest in the community, a lot of times people think that those are at odds with each other because they want more immediate numbers mm-hmm. to show up. And that's completely understandable. But you have to have faith in organic growth and creating cult-like following and making sure that people are invested in what you're trying to sell as a story as much as the products you're trying to sell. If they believe in the story, they will, they will take the story in every single form it takes and they'll, they'll iterate on it. They'll, they'll make it better. And it's when you can create opportunities for that iteration that your brand value goes up and skyrockets in a way that you're like, oh yeah, we did everything right. No, no, no the community did everything right and you get to profit off of that. Like, for example, I mean, like the, the Gucci TikToks where everyone's mm-hmm. like trying on different outfits that to look like Gucci, you could not possibly Buy that kind of engineer yeah. a more perfect, <laughs> right? You cannot, you could throw money into the void and beg for that and offer your soul and it would still not be as valuable as that type of organic growth and like that type of playfulness, right? 100%. So it's community is so much more valuable than like super experimental stuff that yeah. they want to like, One. you know, make quick profit off of. So. Yes. 100%. I think we are both very aligned in community building and brands. And, you know, I think people just really need to realize that, okay, you have the community too, and you can't tell them how to feel. You're going to like get to an answer together like brands are not built Mm -hmm. like dictatorially and like broadcast wise, like people talk back now and it behooves you to listen to them. Absolutely. And whatever brand can adapt to that relationship better, they're the ones that are going to stick around and they're the ones that are going to win in the end. If, if there's trust and I mean, trust in, that allows you to make mistakes and to readjust where you're going, then you have enough to get you by the ups and downs of a bad launch Mm -hmm. or bad marketing and stuff like that. But you only get so many chances to build that trust in the beginning, or even when you're already an established brand, it can be removed in a weekend, right? One bad review from a big person can really reshape your customer base. So it's really about figuring out how you can have an actual relationship with your customers and with your audience and it not feel like a transaction because no one wants to feel disposable, right? 
So it's about creating a genuine connection and a story that you're both invested in. And that's not easily done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was so good to talk to you. I know you've been working so hard on your book. Like, I feel like I've seen you, you know, chugging and spiraling. What can you tell us about the book? I know it's very like, it's like your soul and like so close to your heart. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, I'm, I guess I'm almost done with the revision process. It's been a multi-year thing. And that's, it's not even in the the legal pre-read phase. I'm, I'm being very thorough with how I'm creating it. And, you know, that's because I'm a perfectionist, but it's almost done with revisions. And then it's going to go through like the legal pre-read and fact-checking so it's as strong as possible because people probably don't realize this but um, fact-checking isn't like a requirement for nonfiction books a lot of the time and because I'm reporting on the beauty industry which is a very litigious industry I wanted to be as strong and as bulletproof a manuscript as it can be because of the stuff that I reported on and write it about. I can tell you that um there's going to be some interactive aspects to it. And there, I don't think I've ever read a book formatted quite the same way before, as at least as a nonfiction book. So I'm definitely breaking a lot of rules, joyously. <laughs> I love breaking all the rules because I know them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's going to be a really fun experience for the reader. There is going to be a lot of specific brand history and there's going to be a lot of history woven in with, you know, personal experience and memoir. But it's, I'm really excited to share it when it's ready. I don't have a pre-order date. I don't have a pub date that I can give because everything, every book in the publishing world is delayed right now because of supply chain crisis and, and, you know, there's a, paper shortage really factually there's a paper shortage which is hard to (laughs) conceptualize but it's true so um I'll let you know when (laughs) there's a pre-order date for now all I know is that today it's closer than it was yesterday and that there's going to be a lot of really cool um collaborations and projects that I am like lining up for the launch so it's it's going to be a cool experience once we get there, but it's, it's far down the line still, but I appreciate everyone's patience (laughs) with me. That's amazing. Um, I'm so glad we got to catch up today. Um, It's so wonderful vibing with my fellow, like heavily Capricorn placemented friends. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it always feels like, like a a CEO meeting. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much.